It's 8 o'clock. Good morning. This is Northern Light for Friday, February 24th. I'm Monica Sandreski. And I'm Todd Moe. State lawmakers are deciding how much money to allot to healthy foods programs in, in, uh, in the next year. Governor Hochul has proposed big cuts. We'll catch up with one food advocate on their priorities, plus how high housing costs could impact food security. We know that the high cost of housing is what drives people to food pantries in the first place. You know, people who have really pretty decent jobs who just cannot afford to pay their rent and pay for the other necessities of life. So high housing costs drive people to hunger. Also, backcountry skiers, snowboarders, and hikers should be prepared for avalanche conditions if they head into the Adirondacks this weekend. This past weekend was the second annual Queer Ice Fest, an LGBTQ ice climbing event in the Adirondacks. Lucy Grindon was there and brings us voices and stories from Keene Valley. Step up a little more with your right foot into a shelf. Right, like two inches up. There you go. That'll make it easier for you. There's a whole group of us that were rank beginners. We haven't climbed or we haven't done ice climbing and then to watch everyone get up the wall was just like very inspiring all of that's coming up on northern light stick with us broadcast of northern light here on north country public radio is supported by ccom credit union serving the financial needs of people throughout northern new york and vermont in person online at ccom.org and on your smartphone. And by NCC Systems, protecting North Country businesses and homes for 50 years, offering cameras, security, fire alarms, and entry control, nccsystems.com. This is Northern Light. I'm Monica Sandreski. And I'm Todd Moe. State lawmakers are hashing out how much money to allot for healthy foods programs in New York in the next budget. Governor Kathy Hochul's spending proposal includes cuts to programs that address food uh, food insecurity. David Lombardo with the public radio show The Capitol Press Room checked in with the head of the nonprofit Feeding New York State, Dan Egan. Egan says there are missed opportunities in the budget, but one proposal he thinks will be a big plus. What we really like in the budget is the governor's emphasis on reducing housing costs. And uh, I'm a food banker. I'm not an expert on housing policy, so I know there's differences of opinion on her housing policy. But I think the state is right to have an emphasis on reducing the cost of housing, on having more housing construction, whatever form that may end up taking. I don't know. But we know, especially downstate, that the high cost of housing is what drives people to food pantries in the first place. You know, people who have uh, really pretty decent jobs who just cannot afford to pay their rent and pay for the other necessities of life. So high housing costs drive people to hunger. If uh, the governor's got a proposal that reduces housing costs, then we're all for it. The words hunger or hungry are not used at all in the governor's 162-page budget briefing book. Is there also a problem by not seeing or hearing the governor use their rhetorical powers in this issue as well? Yeah, we're disappointed. It would have been nice to mention the issue. I mean, it's it's important. Uh, You go to food bank for new york city the biggest food bank in the state and the shelves are empty we do not have enough food to feed people so yes this is a 
problem. You know, there's inflation. There's a projection that's going to go up another 7% in the coming year. So in the midst of all that, uh, the most important anti-hunger program that the state has is the Hunger Prevention and Nutrition Assistance Program, or HIPNAP. It comes out of the Department of Health. Terrific program. It provides us the ability to buy very high-quality food, you know, trucks, fuel, drivers, etc., all the things that make the food bank and food pantry system work. There's a cut of $22 million in HIPNAP in this budget, and we just think this is absolutely the wrong time to be doing that when people are in such tough shape here and when we're having a very hard time getting other sources of food. We wanted to see an increase to Nourish New York, That was flat funded at $50 million. That's a relatively new program. It's only been around a couple of years. Um, And that connects farmers to who? That's a terrific program that connects farmers to food banks and to the food pantry uh, network. Great program. You know, farmers work very hard. They hate to see their food go to waste, and yet we're wasting about $7 billion. That's billion with a B, billion pounds of food every year in New York State that's either plowed under at the farm or wasted in the grocery supply system and goes into municipal landfills, creates an enormous amount of methane. So what Nourish New York does, it's very smart, is partners farmers with food banks. So we have the ability to buy more New York State product. Every penny of that is spent in New York State. Farm Bureau loves it. Farmers love it. Um, People who are getting the food love it. A lot of fresh produce, a lot of really high quality food. So we think that's a terrific investment in the rural economy of New York State. So we were looking for $75 million in that program this year. Uh, In the governor's budget, it's still at 50. Well, finally, according to a release I saw from the New York Health Foundation, uh, the federal government is set to end a temporary boost to SNAP benefits. That's the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program uh, at the end of February. What will this mean for nearly 3 million New Yorkers who utilize these benefits? It's going to create a real problem. So the drop is expected to be something like $80 a person or you know, roughly $150 per household per month. So imagine taking $150 hit to your grocery budget every month. That is very hard for people to deal with. Um, it's going to send them straight to food pantries, soup kitchens. It's going to stress them out. Kids are going to come to school not having eaten. Uh, Another idea we had, and we've worked with over 200 of our colleague organizations on this, is to get universal school meals funded in New York State. Several states have done that, including neighbors like Maine and Vermont. So right now, there's 726,000 school children in New York State who could have free breakfast and lunch at their schools, and uh, they're not getting that. You talk to any public school teacher, and they'll tell you this is one of their biggest problems is the challenges that families face outside the school building that then come into the schools. That was Dan Egan, executive director of Feeding New York State, talking with David Lombardo of the Capitol Press Room. The final state budget is due out April 1st. Part 
parts of the North Country got more than a foot of snow from yesterday's storm. State officials say that much snow is such a short period of time increases the avalanche risk in the mountains. Backcountry skiers, snowboarders, and hikers should be prepared for avalanche conditions if they head into the Adirondacks this weekend. An avalanche on Wright Peak buried two skiers last year, and there was a deadly avalanche on that mountain back in 2000. Anyone in the backcountry should have avalanche safety gear, never travel alone, and test the terrain for avalanche risk. You can find more avalanche safety tips on the DEC's website. Inflation is high, but so is local spending here in the North Country. That's according to the State Controller's Office, which found that Jefferson, Lewis, and St. Lawrence counties are all seeing big increases in their sales tax collection so far this year. In January, Jefferson County collected more than $700,000 compared to January of 2022. Lewis County took in an additional $200,000, and St. Lawrence County took in $600,000. Those are 10 to 20 percent increases from last year. The North Country is following a state wide trend which saw local sales tax collections increase by about nine percent the state controller is crediting consumer spending and a strong labor market for the sales tax growth but he's warning local governments to budget cautiously as growth could quote level off sooner than expected A leader from New York's Air National Guard has been promoted to a top spot in the U.S. Air Force. Denny Richardson is from Schuylerville in Saratoga County. He's been appointed as the command chief for the 1st Air Force, which defends the airspace above North America. Richardson will oversee 15,000 members of the 1st Air Force, which is headquartered in Panama City, Florida. Richardson has served in the Air National Guard for more than 30 years. Listening to Northern Light here on North Country Public Radio. It's 810. Good morning. I'm Todd Moe. And I'm Monica Sandreski. Just ahead, Wells artist John Van Alstyne has a new book that celebrates 50 years of fusing stone and metal in the Adirondacks. We'll hear more in this conversation coming up in just a few minutes here on Northern Light. Colton guitarist Paul Myers. You can hear more of his music on our website as part of our Underscore project. That's at ncpr.org slash underscore. Northern Light is supported by Barstow Subaru Potsdam. Committed to the safety and security of all-wheel drive. Sales at barstowsubaru.com. And Adirondack Foundation, helping people and families build a legacy of generosity for the Adirondacks. Adirondackfoundation.org.
Winter sports are expensive, and they've historically been dominated by white men. But more outdoor enthusiasts have been pushing for diversity, and some of them are reaching out to their own communities to share the activities they love. This past weekend was the second annual Queer Ice Fest, a free LGBTQ ice climbing event in the Adirondacks. Our reporter Lucy Grindon attended the event and brings us this story from Keene Valley. Ice climbing is exactly what it sounds like. Imagine a waterfall. Now imagine it's frozen. Now imagine you have to climb it. About 50 people are here today to do just that as part of the Queer Ice Climbing Festival. I don't know if anyone heard, but a car pulled up into the mountain here, parking lot. The guy got out and he looked at me. He's like, are you part of that gay group? <laughs> wow. The crag they're going to climb is about 100 yards up a mountainside. The path up to it is covered in snow, ice, and rocks. To actually climb the ice, you need specific gear. Ice axes, specialized boots, and crampons, which are long, wide metal spikes that attach to the bottoms of the boots. And today, there's one extra piece of gear. This one comes as a surprise. Oh, who the f*** brought glitter? Glitter for the sun. Oh, my God. There's hot pink, deep blue, and gold glitter. People take off their gloves and gently smear the sparkles onto each other's cheeks. Will somebody apply it for me? Um, Is there a glitter expert? No, I'm, well, do you have a a desired look? No. No? You're just, you're leaving it in my hands. Yes. Melissa Orzakowski is the one who brought the glitter. She's one of the organizers of this event. Something that you should know is that... Climbing, top rope climbing with the rope set is a safe place to push through fear. It's super natural if that's what you're feeling right now. If you're feeling a little nervous, if you're feeling a little bit uncomfortable, that means you're an intelligent human being. Like, that's our instinct. That's what we should do. But this is a cool place to be able to push past that and work through that. Orzakowski started ice climbing in college. One of her friends took her climbing her freshman year, and she loved it. After that first experience, she was determined to keep going. But the next year, her friend graduated. Suddenly, she had no one to climb with. All of the experienced ice climbers in the area were bros, and I didn't necessarily want to climb with them, and so didn't really have like that mentorship. Ice climbing has historically been dominated by cisgender white men. A few of the queer climbers tell me they've faced harassment and rudeness in the outdoors. People intentionally using the wrong pronouns, sending weird looks, or just giving heightened, unwanted attention. Some of the people here today say they've held back from trying ice climbing in the past because of a lack of mentors and community. Jay Lupino is here for the second year in a row. He says he sometimes hesitates to try new sports because he's not sure he'll be welcomed. It felt kind of hard for me to get into just because, like, as a lot of, like, dude bros and into, like, the outdoor stuff. And as, like, a person that is read as, like, a, like, effeminate, like, gay guy, it was hard for me to, like, meet up with, like, groups of people to go hiking because, like, a lot of the guys didn't want to talk to me because, like, eh, gay guy, you know? Last year was Lupino's first time ever ice climbing. His partner, Matt Bernstein, says Lupino was pretty nervous. The belayer was like, okay, it's time to come down. And he was just like, "Uh uh-huh. And he didn't want to back up. But this time, Lupino faces the ice without hesitation. You're on belay. Climb when you're ready. And up he goes. Nice. Orzakowski says the whole point of this event is to make climbing more inclusive 
by giving queer people a comfortable space to try it in. And she says this kind of activity can be especially rewarding for queer people. As a queer person, I do face more fear in situations like not knowing if I'll be accepted, not knowing if I'll be respected. And I think being able to practice, like being brave and doing things even when they are scary is valuable. With just a few social media posts to publicize it, this event has gotten a lot of interest. But Orzakowski says she's also gotten a lot of pushback for creating an event that's only for queer people. It's not that like we don't want to include people. It's just that like we want to have a space that we know is going to be a safe space. And there is a palpable feeling of safety and comfort between these climbers, most of whom have just met each other. People are sharing their thermoses of tea and offering the jackets off their shoulders when someone looks a little too cold. They're snuggling into their partners for warmth, chatting casually about their relationships and really encouraging each other. Step up a little more with your right foot into a shelf. Right, like two inches up. There you go. That'll make it easier for you. He's climbing that ice. He is. In, in a light top layer in his hair. He looks like Fabio. <laughs> the temperature is around 15 degrees Fahrenheit, but people are having a blast. Orzakowski is walking around at the bottom of the cliff, making sure that everybody who wants it has glitter. <laughs> Rose, do you need glitter? Yeah, I have hot pink. Rose Dumas is here from Burlington. This is her first time climbing. I love this because there's a whole group of us that we're rank beginners. We haven't climbed or we haven't done ice climbing. And then to watch everyone get up the wall was just like, I don't know, was very inspiring. Dumas says she's dealt with harassment in the outdoors because she's queer. But here, she feels like she has the space to be brave and try something new. It's super easy to feel kind of feel like I get intimidated, for me anyway, and feel like an idiot and think, oh, I can't do this. But you can do it. All it takes is the right people. And also some ice axes. Lucy Grindon, North Country Public Radio, Keene Valley. You're listening to Northern Light here on North Country Public Radio. I'm Todd Moe. And I'm Monica Sandreski. In just a minute, 50 years of stone, metal, and wood art in the Southern Adirondacks. After that, stick around after the show for Bird Note, a community science project studies what feeder birds do in wintertime. That's just ahead at 842. But first, Todd has a look at the weather for us. Clouds, maybe an occasional snow shower today and through the weekend. Highs this afternoon. 10 to 15 above, a little milder in, in places like Glens Falls, Saratoga Springs. Uh, clearing skies and cold tonight, sub-zero lows. And then tomorrow, a high near 20 and a high near 30 on Sunday with scattered snow showers. John Warren checks outdoor conditions for the Adirondacks this weekend. Winter outdoor recreation got a boost this week with a good deal of new snow around the region. Most lower elevation areas picked up at least 4 to 8 inches of new snow, with higher elevations getting as much as 10 inches to a foot or more on the highest summits. That brings total snow depths ranging from 10 to 20 inches across most of the Adirondacks, with the exception of the Lake George and Lake Champlain valleys, which are more in the 4 to 8 inch range. 
There was about three feet at Lake Colden and even more at the highest elevations. Snowshoes or skis will be needed everywhere, and be sure to carry traction devices for any icy areas that develop as trails get broken out. Also expect to encounter a significant blowdown on trails this weekend. Temperatures on high peak summits are expected to be in the single digits below zero today, with wind chills in the 20s below zero. Tomorrow's summit temperatures are expected to be in the single digits, with wind chills dropping into the teens below zero. And Sunday's forecast for summits is calling for temperatures in the teens and wind chills in the single digits below zero. Rivers and streams are running a bit above normal for this time of year, and although some stream crossings may not be frozen, it generally shouldn't be a problem this weekend. The inlets and outlets of Avalanche Lake and Lake Colton remain thin and dangerous, but those lakes are being crossed. Backcountry trails around the region will be skiable this weekend, although the steepest terrain may be thin and fast. All the region's ski facilities will have been grooming and will have good conditions. The Tupper Lake Brew Ski will have plenty of snow for this weekend, and Paul Smith's Vic received about 8 to 10 inches of new snow, enough to reopen their Jenkins Mountain backcountry area. Truck trails and traditionally unplowed roads will be some of the best skiing this weekend around the region. Around Long Lake, Cedarlands and Fork Lake Campground Road are being skied, as is the Three Brook Loop. Similar conditions can be found at Upper and Lower Sargent Ponds, as well as the Powerhouse and Cascade Trails in Racket Lake. Downhill conditions will be some of the best of the season this weekend. Gore and Whiteface both got at least 10 inches of new snow, and both will have nearly all their terrain open, including some glades. There is one caveat to the good skiing this weekend, however, and that is an avalanche warning issued by DEC. There have already been some slides reported in the high peaks, so don't venture out onto steep open terrain unless you are well-trained in avalanche skills. That includes down at Snowy Mountain in Hamilton County. And finally, most snowmobile trails are back in action, although expect somewhat thin and icy conditions, especially on the most popular trails. Those are the outdoor conditions in the Adirondacks this weekend. For North Country Public Radio, this is John Warren from the New York Almanac, online at newyorkalmanac.com. You're listening to Northern Light here on North Country Public Radio. It's 821. Good morning. I'm Monica Sandreski with Todd Moe. For 50 years, Adirondack artist John Van Alstyne has been creating sculptures, sometimes monumental in size, from found stone, discarded steel beams, and chunks of wood. His home and art space in Wells includes workshops, an historic lumber mill, and an outdoor sculpture garden along the west branch of the Sacandaga River. Van Alstyne's abstract art breathes life into inanimate objects and combines elements of mythology, nature, and modern technology. I spoke with him last summer when his show Transformations was at the Hyde Collection in Glens Falls. John is also the subject of a new book, American Vistas, by Tim Kaine. It traces his career from his student days at St. Lawrence University to massive artwork on display at galleries, museums, and sculpture parks around the world. The very first work, or the, or the earliest work, was one I did at St. Lawrence when I was an undergraduate. I my first printmaking class, 101, with Roger Bailey. <laughs> it was a fun piece. It was a self-portrait. And, you know, we were all kind of wearing beards and long hair at the time, so it was pretty easy to do a self-portrait. I just sort of smushed around the ink, and it looked pretty good. And, and I thought, you know, I'd been reading about Vincent van Gogh, and I looked at this, I said, wow, that's uh, Van Alstyne, Van Gogh, that's like, I'll title it uh, Self-Portrait After Van Gogh. And boy, Roger <laughs> Bailey didn't think that was very cool. 
I don't think I got a very good grade on that, but it's fun. It's not a bad. It's not a bad image, and it's fun. It's the earliest one in the show. So, yeah, uh, and you know, another interesting thing about St. Lawrence. You know, I went there as a skier. You know, I was a hot skier in high school, and I kind of got recruited for St. Lawrence, and I skied with them the my vars- first year on their varsity. But the one thing that I was very different about college sports was, man, you had to really spend a lot of time at it, unlike high school. And when I started taking art classes, which were three and four hours long, I didn't have time to do the skiing thing. And quite honestly, I had been burned out from doing it all all my childhood. So it was a pretty easy transition. And I actually, I wanted to take ceramics. I went to uh, Mike Lowe, who was teaching then, and he was been there forever. And I said, I want to sign up for ceramics. And uh, he said, oh, man, you're a freshman. You know, the, all the upperclassmen sign up for ceramics. It's a fun gut course. You'll never get in. He said, but why, if you're interested in clay, why don't you sign up for sculpture? And uh, I said, well, okay. And uh, gosh, that turned my whole life, you know, Mike Lowe. And then, of course, Guy Berard was there, and he was uh, kind of um, cheering me on and, and in a good way. And uh um, I spent two years at St. Lawrence before I realized that actually I needed a, a more expansive program and ended up at Kent State. So, yeah. So, 50 years, I'm I'm wondering, um, I, I miss, maybe it's a cliche to ask you what's changed in your, in your philosophy or your work or what you're working with in terms of materials as you look back 50 years. I mean, we've talked before about yeah. the work you've done all over the world. I mean, sculptures yeah. on display during the Beijing Olympics and right, lots right. of places. I mean, what, I mean, have things changed? I mean, how do you sort of look back at 50 years and say, you know, you said it's been really fascinating looking back at your early works. I mean, yeah. what kind of goes through your mind, I guess, as you look back 50 years? Um, I guess at the core, it's still very, very similar. I am an artist that puts things together. I assemble things. And then initially, when you start out as a student, you start out, you know, carving stone, welding steel, maybe doing painting, whatever. Um, I had a, an interesting thing happen where um, when I was in graduate school, a piece of carved marble fell off the table, broke into 100 pieces, and it totally put me in a tizzy i came back i looked at the pieces on the floor and i realized wow there's some interesting things there and i started picking them up putting them together and it was that sculpture was a huge turning point in my career in that i started using found stone and assembling stone using it as an assemblage element rather than a carving element and i've been doing that ever since that was in 1975 you know in various ways so at the core of my work it's about putting together natural nature natural stone like you would in a a japanese rock stone garden and combining it with steel kind of the american can do spirit and making sort of a marriage of those two and kind of in conflict in concert um looking back there is the you know the kernel of the um, of the beginnings right there has it always been too i'm i'm reading off of the, the the Hyde collection website here um John, about your work, and it's it mentions the balance and energy in the moment. And I think when I look at your pieces, I think about, wow, it, they, they they look sort of sometimes a little precarious. There is that sort of balance. There is that energy in in, in those pieces. Is, is that still very true for a lot of your work? Oh, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. In fact, you know, I'm, I try to breathe life into inanimate objects in other words get them up get them dancing choreograph them 
And in fact, I'm going to be working again with Ellen Sinopoli, uh, the dance company. They're, they're choreographing a special uh, performance at the Hyde, and that's uh, August 6th, Saturday, August 6th, open to the public. That's always exciting to see how dancers interpret the work, because at the core, they really are about dance, you know. <laughs> they have sometimes figurative references, even though they're very, very abstract. But yes, they're up and dancing and alive. Thank you. Okay, so you're looking back 50 years, but you've still got things on your mind, works that you want to do. What do you oh. <laughs> what do you what do you think of in the next, you know, 10, 15 years? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's kind of weird looking at this show. It's like I'm thinking, wow, is this the apex of my right. career? Right. <laughs> is it all downhill from here? <laughs> right. But, um, you know, we've got a lot going on. I, you know, I'm Caroline Rommersdorfer, also a, a world-renowned sculptor. My wife, partner, we live here. We've got all kinds of things going on in our sculpture garden. We're hosting, um, actually, this summer, July 9th, Adirondack Experience members are coming down for a tour. They're coupled with the Arch Adirondack Architectural Heritage Group. And because our mill is over 200 years old, we kind of were both historic and contemporary at the same time. And that, that's always fun. In fact, I spent a lot of time this year researching and applying to the Pomeroy Foundation. And we got a grant into one of those New York State historic yellow and blue signs out front, which is something I wanted to do forever because this property is so amazing. You know, it's nine acres. The river runs through it. We've got three dams down there and, uh, it's great for trout fishing and swimming, and it's also a wonderful sculpture park. So, um, you know, while it's in my custody or in my care, I want to, you know, do as much as I can to preserve it and, and keep it going. And that's one of the things that we'll be working on, of course, in the years to come. That's Adirondack artist John Van Alstyne in a conversation from last summer about 50 years of creating sculptures, sometimes monumental in size from stone, discarded steel beams, chunks of wood at his home and art space in Wells, New York. And that's Northern Light for this Friday, February 24th. Morning Edition continues in just a minute right here on North Country Public Radio coming up at 835. I'm Monica Sandreski. I'm Todd Moe. Have a great weekend. Be well. <laughs>